Well, the night before Jesus was crucified, in what is uh, now known as his farewell discourse, he said to his disciples, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 4 and 5. You understand, Jesus wants you to do more than just believe in him. He wants you to abide in him. Jesus wants you to know him. And to be sure, abiding in Christ is something altogether different than merely believing in Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, said, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe. James 2.19, he said that uh, to church people, by the way, to believers. Okay, you, you can believe that someone is who they say they are and still not have a relationship with that person. And please don't misunderstand me. Faith is obviously a necessary component to our relationship with Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul said, by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith, Ephesians 2.8. Obviously we must believe in Jesus. And yet Jesus himself said that unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Nothing of eternal value. You see, faith in Jesus Christ without an abiding in Jesus Christ is idle faith. And listen, if your faith is idle, if your faith is not active, if you are not actively abiding in Jesus Christ, you will slowly and steadily drift away from Jesus Christ and that faith in him. The people that I know who claim to be agnostic, those who say, well, we don't know if there is a God or not, the agnostics that I know personally are all people who claim to have once had faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that's the case with all agnostics, but it is with the ones that I know. And by their own admission, they didn't wake up one day and go from having faith in Christ to having no faith in Christ overnight. No, by their own admission, it was a process over a period of time, usually years, through various life experiences and relationships with other people that led them to their current state of neither belief nor disbelief. And it is very telling to hear their stories, heartbreaking stories about circumstances and relationships that led them to where they are today because their faith, rather than being rooted in an abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, was based on changing circumstances or their relationships with other people. And so when those circumstances were no longer favorable to a life spent following Christ, or when those relationships turned them away from Jesus Christ, they began to drift away from the faith. It's exactly what happens when our faith is not firmly established in an abiding relationship with him regardless of our circumstances or relationships with other people and just to take it a step further I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding even in much of the church today about what a relationship with Jesus Christ actually is especially in this age of technology that we're living in we have entire generations of people 
who have grown up having online relationships now. We have Snapchat and Facebook and GroupMe and texting and online gaming and on and on it goes. And that's fine, but the problem is the, the very definition of what it means to have a relationship with someone else is being redefined in our society. And so just to make sure we're all on the same page here, when Jesus talks about abiding in him, he's talking about much more than knowing about him or reading about him or hearing about him or just believing in him. He's talking about a union with him, not just believing, but actually being one with him. The closest analogy that we can draw from our human experience is that of marriage. In fact, when talking about marriage, Jesus said the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Mark 10, 8. The two become one. It is a union between a man and a woman that becomes something different than just two individuals who are sharing the same space. Marriage, according to Jesus, is two people becoming one, in a sense, both spiritually and physically. And you cannot have that kind of a relationship over the internet. No, for there to be a true Union between two people, there has to be one-on-one in-person interaction, personal contact, ongoing commitment, intimate communion. You have to actively attend to that relationship. And it is the same with Jesus. To become one with Christ, we must abide in him. Which begs the question, how do we do that? Well, after all Jesus told his disciples, after telling them they must abide in him, he'd done that right before telling them he was about to leave them. Right before he was to be crucified. How do we have an abiding relationship in Christ then? Well, in that same farewell discourse in chapter, uh, the chapter before, Jesus promised to send them and us his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of every believer. And he said to them, in that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. John 14, 20, he's describing abiding relationships here. And so look, if you are a Christian, if you're truly a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, then you are one with Christ. There is a union of your spirit and his, and that is where your faith is built up. That is where your relationship with him bears spiritual fruit in your life as you attend to that relationship. And yet when we allow our faith to become idle, when we neglect our relationship with him and instead focus on circumstances and other relationships in our lives, we drift away from Christ, our faith begins to wane and our lives become spiritually unfruitful. This is the result of idle faith. And I actually believe it is a plague in the modern church today. I think there are a lot of believers in our churches who through a lot of distractions, circumstances they're facing, other relationships they're focused on, people have allowed their faith to become idle and the result is we have a lot of believers who are not bearing the spiritual fruit that we were created to bear. Then we wonder why the church isn't more effective in spreading the gospel in our culture today. Well listen, the solution isn't to fix what is broken in the culture. The solution is to fix what is broken in the church. 
in our own lives. The solution is to turn our idle faith into an active faith, which is what happens when we abide in Christ. Then the church bears the fruit it was created to bear and the culture around it is transformed. What we have now, at least in some elements of the modern church today, is the opposite. The church in many places is being transformed by the culture. Why? Because we've allowed our faith to become idle. And as we'll see today, it isn't a, uh, this isn't a condition exclusive to the modern church. In fact, it was a problem for the ancient church as well. So let's turn to the second chapter of the letter to the Hebrews as we continue our sermon series, working our way through that letter where we find the author not only warning the church about drifting away from the faith, but also encouraging them in how to keep that from happening in their own lives. We'll begin then by reading the first four verses. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So if you were here last week, you'll remember that much of the first chapter is devoted to discussing how Jesus Christ is superior to all of the angels, which honestly uh, seems a little bit random until you get to chapter 2, where the author starts off with, therefore. In other words, because Jesus is superior to the angels, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard from him than what we heard from the angels, lest we drift away from it. Now, what did they hear from the angels? Well, he's referring to the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law. I don't know if you know this or not, because if you only read the account of Moses receiving the law in the book of Exodus, then all you're aware of is that he went up on a mountain, up on Mount Sinai, and God gave him the law on stone tablets, but actually the angels were quite involved, intricately involved in the process, which we learn from the other accounts of the giving of the law that we have throughout the scriptures. Uh, Stephen is one example, one of the deacons chosen to serve the church in Acts 6, 6. He was dragged before the Sanhedrin and interrogated for preaching the gospel and performing supernatural signs and wonders. At one point in his speech before the religious council, he refers to the Jews there as you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, Acts 7.53. The Apostle Paul refers to the law as being put in place through angels by an intermediary, Galatians 3.19. Psalm 68.17 refers to God at Mount Sinai being surrounded by his angels. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary, it's heaven come down to earth. In his final blessing over the people of Israel just before his death, Moses himself refers to the giving of the law, which happened again at Mount Sinai. He says, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand, Deuteronomy 33, 2. By the way, it's not just 
uh, biblical scripture. We have a wealth of ancient Hebrew writings that refer to the law being delivered to Moses through the angels. The first century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus wrote in his book Antiquities, we have learned from God the most excellent of our doctrines and the most holy part of our law by angels or ambassadors. The book of Jubilees, a second century BC Jewish writing, references the angels' involvement in the giving of law of the law in four different places. We won't take the time to read them. The Damascus document, one of the earliest texts that we have from the Qumran, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, refers to the angels as mediators of the law at Mount Sinai. Okay, the point is, it was commonly understood among the Hebrew people that the angels spoke, delivered, and put the law into place as directed by God, which makes verses 2 and 3 in our text today make a lot more sense when you consider that he was writing this to a group of Jewish Christians when he says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You see what he's saying here. Since the law, which we all know was delivered by angels, since it proved to be a reliable rule for faith and life, and since everyone who disobeyed it received a just retribution, how much worse is it to neglect the word of God that was delivered through Jesus Christ himself, who happens to be superior to all of the angels combined? Here's the real kicker. This wasn't written to a bunch of unbelievers. This was written to the church. If he was writing to unbelievers, he would have said, how shall we escape if we reject such a great salvation? But he's not talking about unbelievers who reject the message of Christ. He's referring to believers in the church who neglect the message of Christ. He's directly addressing those within the church. You see, our biggest problem really isn't what's happening in our culture today. As crazy as all of that is, our biggest problem is not what's happening in our culture today. Our biggest problem is what's happening in the church today when Christians stop abiding in Christ and allow our faith to become idle. It's just what was happening with these Hebrew Christians in the first century church. They were being pressured and persecuted and distracted by the culture around them to turn away from their faith in Christ and return to the law. But notice the author doesn't even address the culture around them because he's not trying to change the culture. He's trying to engage the church with the gospel. Because if the church is truly abiding in the message of Christ, then we will produce the spiritual fruit that we were created to produce regardless of what is happening in the culture around us. So he says to these Christians, don't neglect what has been given to you. Cherish the gospel. More than you concern yourself with politics, more than you concern yourself with social media, more than you concern yourself with today's headlines, more than you concern yourself with whatever happens to be popular, more than you concern yourself with any other message in the world today, concern yourself with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
See, it's not that those other messages don't matter. It's just that the gospel matters more. It's not that we don't need answers to the problems that are ailing this world. It's that the gospel is the answer to what ails this world. It's not that we shouldn't be engaged in those conversations. It's that the gospel is how we engage in those conversations because the gospel points people to Jesus Christ. And if we're truly abiding in him, then our lives and our speech at every turn should also be pointing to Jesus Christ. Listen, uh, the gospel message is subversive to the message of the world. The way the gospel defines truth and beauty and goodness As author Michael Bruner puts it, it's antithetical to the way the world defines truth and beauty and goodness. The gospel message is subversive to the message of this world. That's why it is rejected by the world. You understand if the gospel was innocuous, harmless, tame, then no one would care. But because the gospel message is a subversive message, sharing the gospel then becomes a subversive act. And you'd better believe that people are going to care when you challenge the very core of what they believe about truth and beauty and goodness with the message of the gospel. And yet again, that's not the problem. The fact that our culture is opposed to our message really is not the problem. The problem is when we profess to be followers of Christ and no one ever opposes our message. That is usually a sure sign that we've neglected the gospel in our own life, that our faith has become idle and we are drifting away from the profoundly provocative truth of this message. And I'm telling you, it is a plague in the American church today, the taming of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact is, if we're not willing to embrace the challenge of the gospel, then we do not truly cherish the gospel. When the author warns us against neglecting the message given to us by Jesus Christ in verse 3, the word neglect there in the ancient Greek is the word amaleo. It means to be careless of or to make light of. So neglecting the gospel message isn't just a matter of not spending enough time in God's word. It is also very much a matter of trying to make the message something less than what it actually is, to make light of it because we're afraid it might offend someone. Right? When, when you share the truth of the gospel with an unbeliever, they will typically react in one or two ways. Either they will move toward it or they will move away from it, but rarely will they remain indifferent unless you have made light of it. Unless you've shared a message with them that challenges no one because it is easy to be indifferent about a message that has no real impact on our lives or the way we see the world. Nobody cares, right? In fact, the group of people who I think tend to be the most indifferent about the truth of the gospel message, at least in my experience, are Christians who have allowed their faith to become idle. This is the very problem the author was addressing here in the letter in the first century church. So let's keep reading verses five through nine.
For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. So the author continues to paint this picture of Jesus as greater in comparison to the angels, of course, because of the esteem that the Hebrew people felt toward the angels of God. So he says, for it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. In other words, in the next life, as we understand it today as the new heavens and the new earth described in the Revelation, the world to come is not subject to the angels, but to Christ. Well, then what about this world? Right? What about the one we're living in right now? The author goes on to say, you made him for a little while lower than the angels, which sounds like the angels then must have been actually put in charge at some point in some capacity over some measure of this world. Not, not sovereign, you understand, over the world. God alone is and always has been and always will be sovereign but somehow in charge of the spiritual administration of this world until the Father crowned him, Jesus, with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, if you turn to Deuteronomy 32, 8, it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. The sons of God are angels. In fact, if you read that same verse in the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the children of men, he set the bounds of the peoples according to the number of the angels of God. Okay, and then if we go to the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verses 20 and 21, we find the angel Gabriel talking to Daniel about having to do battle with the prince of Persia. That would be the patron angel of Persia and the prince of Greece, the patron angel of Greece. And then he goes on to say that he will have help from Michael, the prince or patron angel of Israel. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. You understand the number of nations spread throughout the world was based on the number of angels that God had made available to put in administrative roles in order to oversee those nations. Which again, this was all common knowledge by the Hebrew people who held the angels in a profound sense of honor and esteem because they knew that the law, their law, was given to Moses through the angels and that the angels had been overseeing the nations, and yet as esteemed, as deserving of honor as the angels are, as important as their roles have been over the nations, the author says now, everything has been put in subjection to Jesus. He says the Father left nothing, nothing outside of his control. And yet the reason these first century Hebrew Christians were struggling with that, which happens to be the same reason 
Christians struggle with the sovereignty of God today is because of what the author says in the very next sentence. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Right? Obviously, uh, there are a lot of people in this world who have rejected Christ. We know that. Right? There is evil. There's deceit. Sin abounds. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. And because of that, some of these early Christians were allowing their faith to become idle. They were discouraged to the point of giving up on their relationship with Christ. And so the author of the letter says, look, I understand that we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but we must recognize that God is in control. Even though we can't always see it, even though it doesn't always seem like it, even when he may seem absent to you, God is still in control. So don't allow your faith to become idle when it seems to you that God is idle. Because even though you cannot always see God working, God is always working. And not just that, he's always working on your behalf. Jesus said, my father is working until now and I am working, John 5, 17. Some translations say it this way, my father is always working and so am I. What does that work look like? The Apostle Paul sums it up. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Okay? Just because we cannot see God at work does not mean that he's not working. He is always working and that for your good. See, when our circumstances are not going the way we want them to, God is not the problem. So why do we allow our faith in God to falter? The truth is, if your faith in Jesus Christ is predicated upon your life and circumstances going the way you want them to, then at some point in your life, you are going to have a major crisis of faith. We don't have a God problem. We have a perspective problem. Because God working all things together for our good doesn't always look the way we want it to or think it should. And we're going to talk about this in depth when we get to chapter 11. But here's just a taste of what the author says about some of God's people who lived their lives in the very center of God's will. These are people who lived the lives that God created them to live. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others uh, suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering around in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Hebrews eleven thirty five through 38. We don't have a God problem. We have a perspective problem. Bible scholar George Guthrie says, the answer to our dilemma lies in our perception of reality and specifically the nature of the Christian faith. 
In Western Christianity especially, we have become committed to relieving the pain behind our problems rather than using our pain to wrestle more passionately with the character and purposes of God. Feeling better has become more important than finding God. And worse, we assume that people who find God always feel better. To focus on our situations, our problems, our pains as primary rather than the purposes of God is to move away from important aspects of following Christ. We must follow Christ in the way of suffering. God's people have always been persecuted as counter to the power systems of this world. The enemy, death, still walks the highways of the globe, having yet to be put completely out of commission. Persecution has always been the normal Christian experience. We don't have a God problem. We have a perspective problem. If your faith is based on the favorability of your circumstances, listen, eventually your faith will become idle at best and will utterly fail you at worst. The answer then is not to lose faith in Christ for not changing your difficult circumstances. The answer is to abide in Christ in the midst of your difficult circumstances because that is where your faith is strengthened. That is where your faith comes alive. That is where your faith is most active when you do more than just believe in him, when you abide in him. Abide in him, even in your suffering, especially in your suffering, and you will find all that you need and more in those most difficult times in your life. It's what the author's trying to get across to these early Christians. So let's finish the story for today. Verse 10 to the end of the chapter. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children of God uh, that God has given me. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So all this time, up to this point, the author has been hammering away in the letter the fact that Jesus is in every way, shape, and form superior to the angels who the Hebrew people held in the highest regard. And then in the last section of the chapter, he tells us uh, what this superior Jesus did, not for the angels, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. No, this is what Jesus did for us, for you and for me. He willingly suffered 
and died a horrific death to rescue us, to make propitiation for our sins. It's the ancient Greek word halaskamai. It means to atone for, to make reconciliation for, to appease. You see, we were lost without Jesus. We were destined for an eternal death because the wrath of God that we were all living under because of our own sin until Jesus rescued us from that wrath. He appeased that wrath and he did it through suffering. Which not only means there's hope in him for the next life, but because he became a human like one of us, and because he lived on this earth as a man, and because he suffered the worst kind of suffering for our sake, there is not only hope in him for the next life, but there is hope in him for this life. That's why the author says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Pastor and scholar David Gustick writes, this is the ultimate illustration of the fact that real love, real giving involves sacrifice. As David said, nor will I offer offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing, 2 Samuel 24, 24. God's love for us had to show itself in sacrifice and Jesus could not sacrifice unless he added humanity to his deity and suffered on our behalf. You see, because he did what only he could do, no man could do what Jesus did. No angel could do what Jesus did. Only Jesus could rescue us from the wrath of God through suffering. And because he did what he did, the author says you can turn to Jesus for help. The problem for many Christians is we turn to just about everyone and everything but Jesus for help first. Which is what happens when you believe in him but you don't make any effort to abide in him, you inevitably look to the things that you do abide in. For most of us, that's other relationships, and I would say including, and especially the one that you have with yourself. So many believers actually trust themselves more than they trust Jesus Christ. They probably wouldn't admit that. But when temptation and troubles come, they rely on themselves first to try and escape it, to try and mitigate that temptation rather than running to Jesus Christ and relying on him, which is typically, when we rely on ourselves, typically a really good recipe for disaster in our lives. The great preacher and author Charles Spurgeon once said, do not make it any cause of complaint that you're tempted. If your Lord was tempted, shall the disciple be above his master or the servant above his Lord? If the perfect one must endure temptation, why not you? Accept it, therefore, at the Lord's hands and do not think it to be a disgrace or a dishonor. It did not disgrace or dishonor your Lord and temptation will not disgrace or dishonor you. The Lord who sends it sends also with it a way of escape and it will be to your honor and profit to escape by that way. It will be to your honor and profit to escape by that way, not by your own way. Listen, some of you are facing temptations and trouble in your life today. Jesus can help you. Jesus wants to help you. 
fact, Jesus is offering to help you because Jesus has the answers that you need, but you're going to have to do it his way, not your own way. This is where we get ourselves into so much trouble because we want to do things our own way. And then when it doesn't work out the way we wanted it to or thought it would, we question God and allow our faith to become idle. And the whole time Jesus is right there waiting to help you. Okay, there's no other relationship. There is no religion. There is no law. There is no philosophy. There is no personal possession. There is no obsession or addiction. There is no practice or person or politics that can provide for you what you need in this life. Only Jesus Christ has the answers that you need and they can only be found as you abide in him. Okay, Jesus doesn't want you to just believe in him. He wants you to abide in him. And when he talks about abiding in him in John 14 that we read at the start of the message, the word abide in the original Greek is the word meno. Among other things, it means to dwell. You see, to dwell in something is to live there. Right? When you're facing temptation especially temptation from the world to abandon your faith or some aspect of your faith which is a constant temptation in our culture today, even in some of our church culture, where do you turn first? Do you seek the opinions of other people, other sources of teaching, other philosophies, other perspectives about God and faith? Or do you seek the author of our faith? Do you seek Jesus Christ first? Are you deeply, prayerfully, consistently dwelling, living in relationship with him? Or are you allowing your faith to become idle because you spend more time abiding in those other influences than you do in Christ? When your circumstances seem like they're out of control, do you honestly believe that God is in control? Or have you allowed your faith to become idle because you spend more time abiding in the fear and uncertainty that so often comes with those circumstances than you do in Christ? Of course, I don't have to tell you, we, we take in so much information every day. We watch the news. We read social media. We listen to people online and on the television and the radio. Experts and opinions on every conceivable subject, which is fine, by the way. As long as you are not living there, as long as you're not spending more time taking in the message of the world than you are taking in the message of Christ. Okay, to, to abide in something. It means you live there. So the question is, what are you abiding in? Where does your heart live? Where do your thoughts live? Where does your faith live? In this world? Or in Christ. Because we can't fix what is broken in this culture. But we can fix what is broken in the church. In our own lives. By turning our idle faith. Into an active faith. As we abide. 
in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.